So you're very welcome to this week's live event from the labs team here at NCBI. Today we have our regular panel with us. We've got JP Corcoran and we've got Daniel Dunn with us and uh, Sean Doran as well to offer their expert opinion throughout the show, as well as, of course, the, the general area of respectability and substance that they bring to our live events every week as well. Even what some have called humour, if you'd believe it. Well, either way, they're all joining me uh, for our live event today, and we hope you enjoy what's coming up throughout the show. In our Meet the Team section, section today, we're going to have the opportunity to talk to Anne-Marie Walsh, one of our community resource workers in the southeast. We'll be finding out a bit about Anne-Marie and about the work that she does with NCBI as well. And after that, we're going to be talking about the development of the JAWS screen reader. We're delighted to say that for that section, we're going to be joined by Key Jaws architect for over 25 years, Glenn Gordon. And we'll be chatting about the, the early days of Jaws, the challenges of adapting a screen reader to a graphical user interface such as Windows. And uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy that discussion just a little bit later. And of course, uh, later on in the show as well, we're also going to bring back fan favourite Joe Lonergan. And Joe is going to be talking to us about the process of creating a shopping list on Amazon Alexa devices. He's even going to do that live. So uh, plenty of scope for things to go wrong with that. So we look forward to that later on. Of course, we have our usual tech news and tech help sections as well. So all in all, we have a, a pretty packed show on for you today. Don't forget that we want to hear from you as well. So if there are any questions that you'd like answered or technology you'd like us to cover or any questions throughout the show today as well, you can contact us either using the Q&A panel on the right hand side of Teams or you can email us at labs at ncbi.ie. But to start us, us off for uh, today's show, let's introduce our guest for Meet the Team this week. And we're talking to the one and only Anne-Marie Walsh. You're very welcome, Anne-Marie. Thanks, Jude. Um, I have to say you've real calling there for um, radio presentation. Uh, Ryan Tuberty, uh, he, he'd want to watch his position in RTE. <laughs> not, not very, not very keenly. He doesn't. You want to be careful now, I'd say. <laughs> so Anne Marie, it's uh, it's good to have you on the show, and uh, thanks for joining us this week. We we know each other going back a while, of course, because we were working together in the southeast. But can you tell us a little bit just about? where exactly you're based and how long you've been with NCBI? Um, OK, so my office base um, is in Kilkenny, um, but I suppose really um, years ago I would have covered South Tipperary predominantly. Um, but now um, anybody over 23 years of age who's not seeking employment or education, um, myself and my colleagues in the southeast would work with those people. Um, so um, it's not really uh, geographically based now. It's more that the region we're kind of covering, I suppose, um, Carlo Kenny, South Tipperary, kind of the areas that I'm kind of working in mainly at the moment. Um, and then I do some um, work with neurological vision loss as well. And that's the whole Southeast. Very good. OK, and that that's kind of interesting to talk about. We might come back to that in a in yeah. a second, but maybe just tell us a little bit about your your background, Anne-Marie, just kind of okay. life before NCBI, if okay, if, uh, yeah. if there was such a thing. Well, um, I could go back to, you know, my birth, my young days now, but uh, 
I grew up in a farm. <laughs> but um, no, I did nursing, I suppose, many moons ago. I uh, qualified as registered general nurse. And um, after that, I would have worked um, for a period of time in the drugs and aid services in Dublin and um, as well as nursing. And um, I kind of went on from from that then into, I suppose, health promotion. Mm. I had gone to college and I went, I went back to college and I did health promotion studies in Galway. And uh, then from there, I was working in health promotion in the southeast for a number of years and a job came up in NCBI. And at that stage, I really had missed kind of, I suppose, direct client work um, from the job in health promotion. We didn't have very much of that. So I, I moved to NCBI and I'm kind of there ever since, really. Yeah, definitely um, so, yeah. Yeah, a bit of a theme coming through there of all the kind of interest in, in working for um, working in in health provision, basically. Yes. Okay. Yeah. But I, I suppose working directly with people as well. I, you know, cer certain roles um, weren't as conducive to that, say, like the, the, ro the role in health promotion. It was very much, I suppose, around policy and, uh, you know, uh, and that kind yes. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very good. So tell us a bit more about your role then at NCBI. You talk, you mentioned a, a couple of things there, but just kind of broadly speaking, what does your what does your role involve? Okay, well, um it's it, it's very broad, I suppose, Jude, really. Um, mm. but generally speaking, so when a person makes a referral into NCBI, uh, myself and my colleague, uh, colleagues in the southeast, we'd get the referral in, and um, we would do an assessment with the individual over the telephone to see if our services were suitable for the individual. Um, and that's an assessment part one is what that that is called. I suppose really it's just you know it's a conversation with the individual to find out about their vision loss, how it's affecting them, and to ascertain whether our services are suitable for them or not. Um, at that point, then we'd offer uh, the person an opportunity to come in and meet face to face. Um, for what we call a, a basically a functional vision assessment. If they have vision, we look at the vision that they have and look at solutions to, I suppose, the problems that they may have, whether that be, you know, not being able to see text. So it might be, you know, it depends on the, the level of vision loss an individual have. Sometimes magnifiers can be a solution. Other times it might be, you know, um, assistive technologies, you know, screen readers and all yeah. that. So it, it really it is very much uh, person centred approach. We look at what it is that the individual requires. Um, so I suppose it kind of breaks out into a number of um, areas then really, I suppose, um, I suppose around, I suppose the whether they can, you know, if they want to look at reading, if they want to look yeah. at, uh, you know, <clears throat> whether it's like mobility, if they're having issues with independent living skills, um, yeah. you know, link them in with, you know, support services. Um, I suppose in the last year, you'd find that a lot of people have been very isolated. So linking them in with the connection network, uh, yeah. you know, so it, it, it really, I suppose, Jude, it really comes down to what it is that the individual wants. And I suppose sometimes, um, it is difficult for the individual to know what it is that they want or, or you know, as well. So um, it is about yeah, giving yeah. them a flavour of what's actually available and really checking back in with them time and time again then to find out, you know, if they, if they you know, because people, their vision changes, what, you know, what they might want one day can change, you know, to the yeah, next yeah. day as well. So it is around kind of staying in contact. Um, but when we would address, you know, I suppose the needs that the person would identify, I suppose then we, you know, we would um, in, come back to them after a number of weeks, usually six weeks, and see that they were happy yeah. with, you know, the solutions that were offered or whatever. And uh, if there was no further contact required, the file would be closed, but the person has the opportunity always to come back to us 
Um, and I'd always really encourage people, you know, to keep in regular contact, you know, if they have further deterioration in vision or if they need support, pick up the phone because we won't know because there's so many people out there and there isn't so many staff as such. So, you know, if you yes, have yeah. issues, it's to stay in contact, really, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. We support you if you, if, if you do that, really, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. just kind of picking up on what you were saying there, there, there's so many kind of directions that can go. It's such a broad range of directions that something can go. But has there been any particular aspect of the work that you've maybe taken a particular interest in over the years? Um, well, I suppose, you know, I've worked in well, the neurological vision loss is the area that I, I suppose I would have yeah. Um, worked in yeah, for, for the last number of years, as well as just the, the, the main body of work. So with that, I suppose oftentimes um, people don't realise that they, their vision loss is actually in their brain as such, that their brain isn't uh, processing the information. They oftentimes would feel that it's their eyes. And yes, it is their eyes. Yeah, but it's the brain, the processing in the brain isn't actually happening. And I suppose there's a huge um, degree of, uh, I suppose, not misinformation, but I suppose when people have strokes or acquire brain injuries, they don't really, they may not get the full picture of what's actually happened. And it takes, you know, time for them to actually, well, I suppose sometimes to actually find out that information, to understand it, for family to be aware of it. Yeah. You know, so um, it, it's good to take time with people to explain it and that they get a sense of, um, the vision loss and then you know get a sense of how they can actually adapt to that type of vision loss as well you know um, they can, it can be the degree of um, difficulties can be quite um, varied between individuals it's like any type of vision loss really and what one person will find difficult another person may not you know so you really have to go with where the person is at um, absolutely yeah. yeah yeah and it, it's interesting actually just hearing that because Obviously, there's there's a number of eye conditions that people might be kind of a little bit more familiar with, but there's actually still quite a range of those. But then you've got this kind of area, which in a way isn't quite, it's not really a condition of the eye as such, um, but it has some some similar effects. Is, is it a very complicated field? It sounds complicated. Um. Yes and no. It depends on how severe, you know, and what areas of the brain are affected. Like some people may have additional, you know, you know, um, issues as well, like processing, visual processing issues, not just that they have a field of loss. Um, it, it might be that they, you know, may have agnosia, they mightn't recognise faces, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it, it can be very, very dif uh, difficult, you know, they may have aphasia, they may not, you know, they may not be able to actually, you know, speak the words. You know, yeah. so it can be it can be um, it can be very, very challenging, you know, um, for, for people and even the rehabilitation process can be very, very challenging as well. Um, you know, oftentimes, I suppose, the people with more severe, you know, brain injuries or maybe get a, an opportunity to have a stint of rehabilitation in the National Rehabilitation Hospital. Um, but, you know, that isn't open to everybody either. You know, certain age cohorts don't get the access to rehabilitation as easy as others, you know, so. Um, you know, so that, you know, that in itself is a problem, you know. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, it is it is a field as well that um, I suppose more expertise are being developed all the time. Um, you know, there's, um, I suppose, when you even look at occupational therapy or different professions, even the 
the, the work in actually um, supporting people with this type of site loss is it's gathering momentum now. Um, there's, you know, I certainly you know don't have uh, every answer without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. But yeah. I suppose you know um, the, the 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 training courses around this as well are they are beginning to be become um, as being developed really actually. Yes. You know, yeah. You know they're. Yeah. Um, there, there's um, an occupational therapist in uh, Canada, Mary Warren. She's done a huge amount of work on, on, on this and the rehabilitation of people with this type of sight loss. But um, it's, you know, it's it's only really kind of coming to the forefront in the last number of years, really. It's not um, something that's been, um, I suppose, really kind of, you could say, nearly recognised or acknowledged in a way, you know, and even yeah. around the registration criteria for people who are registrable with, you know, with vision loss, um, people with, uh, I suppose, uh, harmonics, hemanopias, they don't fit directly into that registration criteria either, you know, so mm. um, there's, 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 um, Work difficulties around that as well around that yeah. as well yeah. around registration of people yeah, with, yeah with this particular type of side loss because you know you you don't have enough field of vision for driving yeah. so you know, it's a lot has huge impact on vision but yet you may still have very good acuity yeah yeah you know so the, the, it you know it again it it does cause issues for people yeah yeah and yeah. like look we, we you know we, we would work with these individuals and try and look at solutions around you know free travel you know all of that yeah. kind of thing you know so yeah. look the entitlements uh, you know we, we will work with people to see to see what's available to them you know and then absolutely yeah yeah well yeah 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 very good well i think that gives us a really good kind of an idea of just how much is involved a lot of the time when when you're working with somebody with with sight loss um and and not just one individual but obviously the broad spectrum of of different um conditions that there are there's there's an awful lot that's involved in it and it's uh, it's good to kind of have a little bit of insight into that extra kind of element that you've been uh, involved in as well thanks for talking to us today Anne marie appreciate you coming on the show thanks very much Stuart. i'll, I'll head off so <laughs> and good to catch up with you <laughs> thanks again for having me very good so thank you very much to Anne marie walsh and uh, really interesting just to hear about some of that uh, extra work that she's been doing with um, um, just just how the, I suppose the brain is involved as well with some eye conditions and, and some sight loss. Uh, so really appreciate Anne-Marie Walsh coming on to the show today. Now, next on today's show, we're going to be talking to one of the pioneers, really, of assistive technology. For over 25 years, Glenn Gordon has been the architect behind JAWS, probably the best known screen reader around. And we're delighted to be able to talk to Glenn today. So you're very welcome to the show, Glenn. It's great to be here. I did hear that you were gonna send me a plane ticket and I was gonna be doing the interview <laughs> in Ireland and I'm still waiting for that to come. Should I We should heard I that you were gonna waiting? fly us. We heard that oh. you were gonna fly us out there. Oh yeah, so miscommunication, always <laughs> that. Great that you could join us anyway, uh, Glenn. Glenn, before we get too much into the, the development of JAWS as such, can we just kind of go back to the, the kind of time frame of uh, when you, maybe even before you joined um, the JAWS project and uh, get a bit of a sense of maybe your own background and where the um, assistive technology was at at that time. Maybe if we start with, with your own background, is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. So. I grew up with a real passion for radio broadcasting and my father was horrified by this idea <laughs> because radio broadcasting in the United States, even back in the early 70s, was a very unstable career. 
it's now like unstable times 10,000 as compared to how it was 50 years ago. But he took it upon himself to take me to every radio station that I wanted to go visit, thinking that disc jockeys would discourage me from wanting to do this. And they did in terms of a career, but I've, I've had broadcasting as an avocation for much of my life with a 30-year uh, hiatus between <laughs> probably 1992 and, uh, or, or should I say a 15-year, 13-year hiatus between 92 and uh, 2015. Okay, yeah, so pretty and, good. And, and, and then my education, I got an undergraduate business degree and found I was qualified for nothing <laughs> and decided at that point that I was interested in computing and so, of course, if you have an undergraduate degree, you want to get a master's, but nobody can get a master's in computing if you don't have an undergraduate in computing or in mathematics. So I got a business degree. I got an, uh, an MBA from UCLA. And just as a lark, I started volunteering at the computer center there. And because I was interested in programming and software uh, at a computing center where people were interested in high finance and other things. I wasn't competing with all the computer science students. I was competing with the business students. And so I was able to, to shine a little bit more than probably I would have in the computer science program. Uh, and so I was working at UCLA uh, at the business school for about 10 years when I actually had met Ted because he worked for a company called Maryland Computing Services. They made a talking HP 150 computer. Not many people probably remember that, well, but it ran yeah. DOS. And so I started using it and one thing led to the next. I started doing some side projects for Ted and he began working on the Windows version of JAWS. And much to my surprise, um, I found that it's really where my passion was lying because I was afraid that I, like so many other blind people, would really lose computing access and life would be much worse off than with DOS. Yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, you you kind of touch on what is maybe even at the core of some of this interview, really, just that, that challenge that uh, would have been there with um, developing assistive software for a graphical user interface as well. That was the um, kind of most most common technology at the time, I suppose, when you joined the JAWS project itself yourself. Yes, and the, and the accessibility landscape was essentially non-existent at that time, mm. right? There were not very many big tech companies. Microsoft was probably the biggest. They had yeah. one guy named Greg Lowney, and Greg went around uh, touting Microsoft's commitment to accessibility, but of yeah. course, other than paying Greg's salary, they didn't have a great commitment to accessibility <laughs> at the time. And, and there was some question as to how a screen reader could actually yeah. capture graphics on the screen. Because yeah. in the days of DOS, the text was in what was called a video memory buffer. Uh, but it was it remained the text and there was some conver conversion further down the pipeline to turn it into you know what showed up there. So yes. screen readers could always retrieve it. In the Windows world, there was no obvious place where a screen reader 
could get the text because at that point the video memory had all churned completely to graphics. And so yeah. unless you were doing OCR or something, uh, there was no way to decode those graphics. Yes, the, yeah. So the magic early on was the conclusion, uh, and I think it was originally done by Slimware Window Bridge actually, that mm. if you could write a display driver, the thing that was created to match what was coming from Windows with the actual video card, the display driver was the last place that text was really text. And so you could create a simulated screen where you yeah. knew where the text was being written. You could store that off. And then when a user said, tell me what the text is at this location, we'd pretend we were the screen. Yeah. And that was the technique that screen readers began to use and slowly proved that Windows could not necessarily be as accessible as DOS, but be in many ways more accessible. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's it's actually really interesting just hearing some of those elements that were involved because obviously the the kind of on the face of it the challenge is very obvious that if you've got something that's a, a text based system at the start and you're kind of reading out text then there's there's kind of that that sounds like a very easy easy thing by comparison to describing what is essentially a picture on a screen um, a, a big series of pictures on a screen but it's it's really interesting to hear what went on behind that and in terms of your role then when when you joined that the jaws project at the time what specifically would you have been in, involved in doing well you you make it sound like we were a big company after <laughs> joyce was eight people when i you were joined. doing everything there weren't there weren't many of us yeah. uh, at, at that point there was a developer named chuck opperman who subsequently went on to work for Microsoft, he and I overlapped a little bit. Yeah. He was the one who actually created the framework of JAWS for Windows, which was mm -hmm. great for me because I didn't know anything about Windows development. I wouldn't have known where to start. And he inadvertently gave me a great proving ground because with yes, what yeah. he had created, I could come in and do tiny, tiny changes and help improve JAWS incrementally, which both got us further down the road, but it also allowed me to build confidence. Yes. Yeah. Although I didn't really doubt that I could do it, I was kind of short on the details of exactly how. Yeah. <laughs> I was just yeah. sure that I was not going to fail at this. So he created the proving ground. We were working side by side until that first release, I think in the early part of 1995. And shortly thereafter, Chuck left to go work for Microsoft, which was yeah. like, you know, it was my happy day. So suddenly <laughs> after being there less than a year, I was sort of in charge of things. Yeah, yeah. So, th so things moved on from there. I wrote most of the code probably for the first five years of JAWS which on the one hand was really invigorating in the sense that, yes, you know, I'm getting all of these things done. And as a result, people are able to accomplish things. But it was also uh, kind of limiting in the sense mm. that I felt 100% responsible. You know, yes, someone yeah. from Microsoft uh, approached me right around that time and said, would you like to come work on Windows NT? Yeah. And I couldn't even uh ethically consider that 
because yes. had I left had I left at that point, there was no one, you know, there was no one to carry the the banner on. Someone mm. else would have been starting from scratch and it would have put the whole company in jeopardy. So mm. th this this is not overstating my talent. It was only overstating the fact that all their eggs were in one basket. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I guess as well, I mean, even just that point that you say about writing all the code for five years, there's there's a lot involved in that anyway. So the the, the skill levels have, have to be up to a fairly high standard at that point anyway. But did you find that that was helpful then when it came to kind of refining the product? So, so you were involved kind of in the lead up to the release of the first JAWS for Windows. When there was the kind of follow up, and as there always is when when software is released, there might be little kind of issues that 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 arise. That must have been kind of quite a help to have been so so involved up to that point. Yes, I think it absolutely was. I do want to clarify before I answer the question that although I wrote the majority of the core JAWS code, there were other people who were coming on board and writing small components. But it uh, wasn't yes, yeah. it, it 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 wasn't the meat of JAWS yeah. until you know we got into the the 2000s. Yeah. In terms of being there from the start and then being able to refine, there was a certain advantage to being able to learn things incrementally. Yeah. I know lots about Windows now, but it's been, you know, 28 <laughs> years almost. Yeah. And it would be far more overwhelming to try to pick up all that information in a really short time. The other the other advantage. Uh, that someone who talked to us when the company was sold and he came in to evaluate how good the code was, he said, yes, it's a real advantage to be the executioner and the coroner, that, <laughs> that you know where all the bodies are buried. He got away with you, gradually, you gradually can go through and improve it, right? If If very few other people are in the code, it's yeah. easy to make sweeping changes really quickly without displacing anyone because you're the only one doing this. Yeah, I remember, yeah. you know, to show you what kind of a nerd I was, it was Christmas, I think, of 96. And I said, oh, JAWS needs to switch from being written in C to being written in C++ using MFC, which was Microsoft's mm -hmm. development framework at the time. And by mm -hmm. New Year's, you know, we were running as an MFC, you know, just, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you know, I got a, I got to a make bug. a quick decision and act I got on a kind bug. Of <laughs> yes. And, 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 and could second guess it, but there was no one else to second guess it at the time. <laughs> that's, that's definitely handy. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And just that kind of ties in maybe with, with the next question of just throughout the kind of development of JAWS, um, what would have been some of the developments? Obviously, the, the implementation of it in the first place was such a big thing straight off. But what are some of the other developments with JAWS that are maybe among your kind of proudest moments? I think switching to a virtual buffer for the Internet. Mm. So when we originally did Netscape, what we did for the Internet was we simply turned on screen echo and we would read what was written to the screen, but there was no way of reviewing it. We'd read what was written to the screen. If you know you didn't catch it, you could refresh the screen, <laughs> but that right. was kind yeah, of yeah. it. 
and yeah. then we'd read the link that you had tabbed to. Very, mm. very primitive uh, by today's standards. Mm. I think Doug Joffrey at Window Eyes at the time was the first to do some variant of the virtual buffer. Mm. But but we did it. We did it too. I think that was probably the main seed shift in terms of how people consume content on the web. We did it wrong the first time, or at least in, an, in a suboptimal fashion. And a couple of years later, as the web got more complicated, we had to rework it. But I think that's that's significant. I think a significant change was Microsoft beginning to add Microsoft Active Accessibility, which was a way that applications could explicitly tell screen readers this is the important information. Yeah. Uh, that was good and that was bad. The good part was they had a way of communicating things. The bad bad part was they often did it in a really clunky, incorrect, incomplete way. Yes, yeah. So there was a, there was an additional thing that we stumbled on really early. Yeah. Applications in the Microsoft Office suite all have something called the object model. And it was not developed for accessibility. It was developed for sighted developers to write add-ins for Word. Yeah. You're, run, you're running a mail order company and you need to do something with form letters. You can write something into Word that'll generate the form letters and let you manually make changes. You know what I'm saying? But whatever the yeah. application was. Yeah. And, and we figured out early on, and I don't think it was necessarily me, uh, that the object model was there and it could give us access to information that wouldn't otherwise be present. Yeah. And because JAWS had a scripting language from the very start where people could write scripts in a slightly higher level language than the core of JAWS was written, we yeah. could leverage that information from the object model to get JAWS to say and braille things. Yes, yeah. In a reasonable way. That must be quite a sense of achievement as well. When when you're able to kind of, I suppose it's <laughs> manipulate is maybe the, the probably the most correct word in some ways. It's like the the original purpose for a particular feature in software wasn't what you were going to use it for, but you were going to adapt it to be able to be pretty much what you needed. That must give you quite a lot of satisfaction at times. It 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 was evolutionary. And and I think I think for things that people find easy that mm. that come naturally, and for many of us who are working on Jaws, I think we fit into that category. If it was if it didn't feel hard to do, it doesn't yeah. feel like we deserve to take a whole lot of bows. If if I'm making <laughs> if I'm making sense, it's like oh yes. yeah, it was fun and it was it was yeah, really yeah. interesting, but it's not like. You know, we cured polio. <laughs> we we, yeah, we yeah. did significant. We we absolutely did significant work, but that's typically not how you know you think about it at the time. You think about okay, what's the what's the problem du jour? What needs to get solved? How do we deal yeah, yeah. with this? Oh my God, the world is ending. We're never going to come up with a way around this. Yes, yeah. I don't know if anything comes particularly to your mind, but just as as you're talking there, I was kind of thinking, just 
those developments that would come up by, for example, Microsoft, you mentioned there, um, and when they're kind of progressing things along um, the accessibility route, if you like, but it actually ending up maybe creating as many difficulties as it as it solves. Was there any, and maybe something doesn't come to mind immediately, but was there anything that, that you particularly found you know, this actually presents us with quite a problem to to really work out something that was really a, a challenge to be able to um, make sure that JAWS could cope with it. Yeah, I can't think of anything specific at the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, window, Windows NT, which XP was based on and now all modern version of operating systems in the Windows domain were based on Windows NT. That was a little bit of a challenge to get going. We we were one of the first on NT. We certainly were one we certainly were the first that was <laughs> priced reasonably. The the first one I can't remember I can't remember what it was called, but I remember it was four or five thousand dollars <laughs> per user just because yeah, just because yeah. they could get it at the time. Yeah, you know the relation yeah. the relationship with Microsoft, you know, is 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 an interesting one, um, as they now have their own screen reader and magnifier. Yeah. At the same time, they are working to help us as third party vendors mm. you know but the, mm. but there's but there's a certain competitive spirit there right because yes, they also yeah, yeah. they also have these products and we need to make sure that we have value add because it's hard to you know it's hard to compete with free if you're only as good as free yes yeah yeah absolutely and it's 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 always interesting just to see developments of kind of different things that work in a kind of symbiotic <laughs> relationship as well um particularly if there are sort of interests that are merged in it and some interests that aren't merged. It's quite interesting to see where that goes sometimes. Can, can we just maybe talk broadly about um, technology maybe more in general? How do you feel that technology in general has facilitated the needs of people with sight loss? I think in two, I think in a couple of ways. One of them is that I think it's the great equalizer if you are working remotely or if you're communicating with someone remotely who has never physically met you. Mm. Because it's very easy to put your personality and your interests ahead of your blindness. If you physically meet someone, they will eventually realize that you can't see and that may be the, the part about you that immediately gets their attention. Whereas if you're on an online forum or email list or Facebook, all of those things tend to be the great equalizers. So, yeah. so that to me is probably the biggest one. Mm. Uh, the, you know, the, the technology specific ones, it's great to be able to have a phone in your pocket and do so many things there. Mm. Uh, if only related to navigation and getting around. There was a case when I was away on a business trip and the touchscreen on my iPhone was beginning to fail. And I started thinking, how am I going to function without my phone? Mm, it's so yeah. quick that we have gotten to the point of the phone being everything. You know, how am I going to call? How yeah, am I going to yeah. call a cab? How, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. how am I going to do that? You know, how am I yeah. going to, you know, check 
whether or not the plane is on time. Fortunately, the phone held up for the duration <laughs> of the trip, so I didn't have to have that problem. Yeah. Yeah, but yes, yeah. I, I, I think it's, uh, it's pretty phenomenal. I also think that voice assistants have become really useful. The thing that I use uh, Alexa for as much as anything, do you care to guess? Go I on. never would have thought this. <laughs> Go on. I, I don't care to guess. <laughs> Reordering products. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so easy to say reorder X and I can be washing the dishes. I don't have to yeah, be yeah. doing uh, yeah. anything specifically at the computer and it's reordered in two or three sentences. That stuff's yeah, really, yeah. That stuff's really powerful. And, and in terms of kind of the correlation between um, AI and those kind of virtual assistants and things like that, and then a screen reader, is that kind of correlation something that's getting stronger and stronger? Is that something that's kind of a natural ally, if you like? We think so, which is why we've added the voice assistant to all of our software, yeah. JAWS, Zoom, Text, and Fusion. But because there is enough of a time lag between the time you issue the command, it goes up to the cloud, it gets recognized, and it comes back to us as a command. Yeah. It's not something that you're going to want to do over and over again for really common tasks. Yeah. We think we think it's the sweet spot for people who may not have lived and breathed our software for their whole lives. You know, yes, where they've yeah. started with a phone or a tablet and come over to something like JAWS when they're in high school and suddenly realize, oh, I can't really write a complex term paper using my iPhone. So now, you know, now they're kind of under the gun. Anything yeah. that we can do to help them begin to master our software is a good thing. And in some small way, commands that you don't do commonly having those available through voice uh, may be useful, right? And then yeah. if someone begins to realize, oh, I've been doing this for voice over and over again, it might be worth looking it up. So yeah. so that's that's where I think it, it really uh, helps people. For the commands yeah. that you may want to do, you know they generally exist. You don't remember what the keystroke is. Yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah, and there is that kind of very natural link in there as well. Looking forward, what sort of areas do you think maybe there's still work to be done in or is there anything that you'd kind of particularly like to see um, in terms of developments for accessibility in, in the coming years? I think so much of the world now has gone to the web. When the web was originally created, you would typically read a page from top to bottom and you would act on some of the links that seemed interesting. Now, yeah. although web technologies are used, and although you can look at all these sites as if they're a flat web page from top to bottom, that tends not to be the most efficient way of using them. Yeah. And so improvements in the usability of those apps, both the things that the app designers can add, that, but also those things that screen reader authors can add, so that Many of us who are blind don't say, oh, give me a win, give me a win 32. That's sort of the native, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. the native yeah, yeah. Windows app. There are yeah. many cases when I'll say, give me a win 32 app rather than a web page. 
you know, Outlook has webmail. Yeah. And it is possible for me to use webmail, but I'm still more efficient with Outlook. Well, why yes. why yeah. is that? How much of that is the screen reader uh, not doing as much as we possibly could? And how much of it is it the way that the website offers navigation commands? Because mm. not every not everything is available in a quote virtual buffer at the same time. And so it's up to the the page itself uh, to let you use commands to navigate and get to the items that are most likely yeah, yeah. of interest to you at that time. Yeah. So so I think I think that's where the that you know that's likely where the the big push is. I'm I'm waiting for thinking and typing. I think there's a little ways away, but I want to be able to compose based on my thoughts. Um, well, I wouldn't want to necessarily see what would come out of that if that was for me. It, it could be uh, very messy. Could be. Yeah, I would. Place. I would want to basically do my own proofreading. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you, Glenn. Really appreciate you coming on the show. It's really interesting just to hear some of those kind of challenges in the early days, but also the the general development, the amount of work that went into to uh, JAWS as well. Um, something obviously that a lot of people, they might not necessarily take it for granted, but it's become such a part of the, the landscape um, that uh, it's really interesting just to hear some of the, the kind of the origin story almost. So really appreciate you coming on the show today, Glenn. Well, thank you, Jude. It was my, my pleasure. Nice uh, chatting with you, a great set of questions. Lovely to talk to you. And uh, of course, for uh, anybody who wants to listen back to that interview, they can listen uh, on YouTube or any of the uh, the regular podcast platforms as well. So I uh, really enjoyed that chat with Glenn Gordon. So next up, we're going to move on with the show now uh, and we're going to have Joe Lonergan with us for this part. Uh, so you're very welcome, Joe. Hi, Jude. And Joe, you're taking on the... Uh, the poison chalice of a live demonstration. You're going to be going through how to set up a shopping list on an Alexa device. That's right, Jude. Um, yeah, so Alexa, it's a really um, handy tool. Um, as Mr. Gordon just said there, he used it for um, shopping and that kind of stuff. Also creating shopping lists. So you can create shopping lists with um, all your uh, smart assistants, but for today we're, we're going to use um, Alexa. I'm going to use an Amazon Echo Dot. And uh, the most important thing about creating a shopping list is accessing that shopping list afterwards. It's no point in creating a shopping list if you can't access it. Yeah. So when you're in the shop or maybe you want to share the shopping list with your assistants or your family or whoever it may be. So um, I have a I have a, an Echo Dot here beside me. I changed the name to Echo so I don't set everybody's uh, <laughs> shopping list off. When they don't want my items on their you shopping list. Enabled. I, Do you want to open it? Echo, stop. Echo, stop. So she was listening to the wake word there while I was talking. So um, uh, there is a shopping list from yesterday, so I'm going to clear that. I'm going to check see is there one at the moment. I think there still is one. Echo, what's on my shopping list? You have 14 items on your shopping list. Here are the five most recent, kitchen towel, bread, vanish gold, baby formula and water. Would you like to hear the next five items? No. Okay. So I hope that's loud enough. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to clear that shopping list now. So echo, clear the shopping list. You'd like to remove all items from your shopping list, right? Yes. Done. So um, I've removed the, the shopping list now so I can I can start again or I'm going to maybe add possibly five items to it and then um, I'm going to open the Alexa app on the phone and uh, see can we um, see what's on the shopping list and share share the shopping list. Right. So Echo, add bread to the shopping list. I added bread to your shopping list. Echo, add mm. sugar to the shopping list. Sugar added to your shopping list. Echo, add butter mm. to the shopping list. I've put butter on your shopping list. Echo, add mm. milk to the shopping list. I've put milk on your shopping list. Echo, add tomatoes mm. to the shopping list. Tomatoes added to your shopping list. And if I wanted to remove one of those items, I just discovered I actually have that already. I can say Echo, remove tomatoes from the shopping list. I've ticked off tomatoes from your shopping list. Which is which is handy, you know. So yeah, um, yeah. I'll add one more Echo, add kitchen towel to the shopping list. I added kitchen towel to your shopping list. Yeah, so that's fair enough. We've added um, five items uh, to the shopping list and um, they're there for me now if I want to go into the app. So when I get to the supermarket, I can um, access them and tick them off as I go around the supermarket, or as I said, I can share them with somebody. So I'm going to open the app now. This is on my iPhone. This can be done on a Android phone also, or you could also access them through Alexa-Amazon.com. I'm going to slow down the voice a little bit. Speaking rate, punctuation, speaking 65, 60%, 55%. So uh, people can understand it. Tap to talk to Alexa from this app. I'm going to flick right now. Alexa, shocking, 14 items. Actions available, shocking, 14 items. It says 14 items, but I think that's, Actions that's, available. that's, an old, that's the older list. So I'm going to double tap and it should refresh. Shocking. Kitchen towel tap to edit. Add item. Button. So I'm up at the top now. I'm going to flick right and see what items are on my list. Kitchen towel tab to edit. Milk tab to edit. Swap butter tab to edit. Sugar tab to edit. Bread tab to edit. Completed. Heading. All right. So there's my five items. And if I was in the shop, I can double tap on any item to knock it off the list as I get it. So, bread tab to edit. so when I get bread, Swipe I can... Swipe left to right to move item to the completed item list. Swipe right to left to display more and delete option. Checkbox. Not checked. So I double tap there. Action. Bread tab to edit. Swipe left to right to move item to the completed item list. Swipe right to left to display more and delete option. Checkbox checked. Bread is no longer on my shopping list. So, um, but if I wasn't going to the shop myself and I wanted to share the shopping list with somebody, yeah, I can go. I can flick back up until I see the word share. Completed. Sugar tab to edit. Butter tab to edit. Milk tab to edit. Kitchen towel tab. Add item. Shopping. More. Share. Button. There we are, share. When I double tap on this share button, um, a share sheet will come up, the um, iPhone share sheet. And your most recent, the people that you most recently contacted will come up and also options to copy the text will come up. So um, I'm going to double tap on share now. Share. Shopping. Now my One. share, Kitchen towel. My share sheet comes up. Three. And I'm going to move my finger down the screen. 
Michelle, messages. Mail, button, Twitter. Message, airdrop, Joe Light, Brian Carr, Steve, Lindsay Carr, Andy, messages. Robert, Shane Byrne, Michelle, messages. Double tap there, and I'm going to send the shopping list. field is editing, shopping. You can imagine then. P. You can imagine that's a, a member of your family that you're sending it to, yeah. or um, someone's giving you a hand. Maybe you have home help or personal assistance. Um, and I and I'm going to double tap. I'm going to double tap on send. Send message. Back and now that's button. sent, and uh, uh, that person can help me get my shopping. Yes. Um, and and that's uh, when you send that. Does the recipient have to have? the Alexa app or does that send as kind of more like a text based thing? How does that work? Now, so Back I'll go in and show you how it appears on the, on the text. Clubhouse dot music dot music messages. Go into messages. Messages. You text message. AI Back button. Hold on. Back button. Message. Compact search. Converse. Michelle. There we are. Me messages. Your iMessage. Shop delivered. Your iMessage, shopping. One, kitchen towel. Two, milk. Three, butter. Four, sugar. Shared from the Amazon Alexa app. 15, 20. Yeah, so that's the message that that person will have received. Um, it says shopping with, with a, a colon at the top and then the list of items. And it says at the bottom, of course, shared uh, by the Amazon Alexa app, which, which is fair enough. Um, yeah, it, it lets people know you created your shopping list with with uh, the Amazon Echo. Um, but uh, I, I don't think you can share using your voice. Um, but as I said, you can use the the web uh, Alexa.Amazon.com to share, and um, you can use the smartphone app as you just seen. Um, so th that's uh, creating a basic shopping list. As I said, you can do this with your other smart assistants. Um, also, Siri, it, the steps are very similar yeah and even with the google home if you didn't want to create it with um the google home you can also create a shopping list with i think it's shoppinglist.google.com and you can share it via email there also ah, very but good. yeah for today's for today's exercise it was alexa yeah. and uh, that, that that's very basic and a really useful really useful tool yeah absolutely yeah and that that ability to share that shopping list as well is is really handy so thank you very much for taking us through that joe that was that was really good and no no hiccups with connection or anything like that it went swimmingly no i, I didn't I didn't expect any hiccups here <laughs> very little faith jude thanks for that <laughs> you have little faith yeah, yeah. <laughs> thanks thanks dude. thanks very much joe Appreciate it. So that was uh, Joel Lonergan taking us through how to create a and share an Alexa shopping list. So I appreciate that from Joe. So moving on now to our tech news. And of course, just before we do, just a reminder that uh, if you want any support, obviously with any of the the uh, technical things that we talk about on the show, you can always contact us on labs at ncbi.ie uh, if you want any training on uh, any of these um, devices, the Alexa devices or any similar ones as well. So moving on to our tech news and uh, first up, if online gaming is your thing, you might have been interested to know that last week the game streaming platform Google Stadia became available for the new Chromecast with Google TV device. It's been available for a while, of course, but now you don't need the separate Chromecast Ultra device 
to be able to, to run Google Stadia. Well, this week it's the turn of Microsoft who have made their xCloud gaming platform available to play using a browser on your iOS device or on your PC, which basically means that like Stadia, you don't need a separate games console to be able to play your favorite games, but you can use it straight from the devices that you already own. So we'll keep a, a bit of an eye on those developments, of course, in relation to accessibility, and we'll let you know about that in the future. Next on tech news is a, a big piece of news from last week. Six years on from being announced as the last version of Microsoft's famous operating system, Windows 10 is being replaced. So Windows 11 was announced last week. And just to give us a bit more information on that, we're going to invite our panel on for, for a few minutes. So maybe we could start with uh, JP. JP, what do we know about the features of Windows 11 at this point? Yeah, sure, Jude, I can go through some of the features uh, that were announced at a virtual event that Microsoft held last Thursday, 24th of June. So as, as you pointed out, uh, Windows 11 will be the successor to Windows 10, which has been around now for six years. It's actually just shy of six years now. It was July 2015 when Windows 10 was released. So we're just have six, six, uh, six years using Windows 10 since that was released. So um, new features that were announced at the virtual event last uh, Thursday. Um, the biggest thing really, just in generally speaking, is uh, just big design changes coming with Windows 11. Uh, to start with, we are expecting a new, more like Mac-like interface. So it's arguably going to be the biggest change uh, off, off the bat of Windows 11 is the, is the interface. So it's much more Mac-like. In terms of visual changes, we're looking at Windows 7. Windows 11 will be featuring a cleaner design with rounded corners around open windows and lighter color shades. Color shades. Um, the next, the iconic Windows Start menu has moved from the bottom left of the screen, where we're familiar with seeing it, to the bottom center of the screen, along with app icons on the, on the taskbar. So it's very much like how apps are organized, arranged on the bottom of a smartphone or tablet. Yeah. Uh, the layout itself is somewhat comparable to, to, to Mac OS, as I pointed out, but it's worth noting that you can bring it back to the traditional interface if you like, so you can return the start button over to the bottom left-hand side of the screen. So uh, if you want to bring it back to how it was, you can do that. Uh, just going to some of the other changes uh, that were introduced, uh, widgets. Um, next, next big introduction is widgets coming to Windows mm -hmm. 11. So in the taskbar, which is located at the very bottom of, of your desktop screen, there's going to be a new icon called widgets. And selecting this will bring up a customizable panel of widgets that can give you access to information such as weather and news. And interestingly, which is actually introduced in Windows Vista, uh, but with Windows 11, they're coming back. And they're set to be much more customizable and easier to use. And then we have okay. support for Android apps. So in Windows 11, we're going to have support for Android apps. You'll be able to install those from the new revamped Microsoft App Store. And these will be integrated into the start menu in Windows for the first time. And they'll also appear in the taskbar if you wish. So overall, like this, this integration of like Android apps into Windows is kind of showing how like desktop and mobile environments are, are merging uh, more and more. Yeah. And then just to go through maybe one more of the uh, kind of new additions that's coming coming and none of the enhancements that are coming with Windows 11. Yeah. There's going to be tighter integration of Microsoft Teams that many people will be interested to hear about. So, uh, so Microsoft's popular video chat platform Teams will be going to be more as they tightly integrated in Windows 11. And it's going to reflect the fact that so many people are obviously now working remotely um, and they're maybe, maybe turned to a hybrid situation for so many days in the office and so many days working from home. And of course, this is given much more reliance on the, on the Teams app. Um, so for starters, Teams is going to appear in the start menu for the first time as well as on the taskbar. 
and it's yeah. expected to be easier to connect to your contacts through text, chat and video calls. And interestingly, it's also going to be possible to connect to contacts who don't even have the Teams app uh, using a, like a two-way uh, SMS kind of conversation so through texting. So yeah. in this regard, uh, Microsoft, like they're very much putting uh, uh, remote working at front and center through a tighter integration of the Microsoft Teams app. Interesting, yeah. So some interesting changes coming. Yeah. Um, when when is it actually due to be released, and is it is it going to be something that people can get as a a free upgrade, as was the case with Windows 10? Sure. Well, originally Microsoft suggested that Windows 11 will be rolled out in autumn of this year and continue to be rolled out in, in 2022, but more recently it has been hinting at a, actually an October release date for for Windows 11. So there's actually some okay. speculation now in, in, in recent times, recent days, only yesterday, that the rollout will commence actually from October 20th or even earlier, but we'll have to wait and see, uh, so to be sure. Okay. That's true. Yeah. And it, it, is it something that's likely to be a, a free upgrade as well? It's due to be a, a free upgrade, yeah. Uh, so okay. if, you're Windows, if you're already a Windows 10 user, uh, Windows 11 will appear as a free upgrade uh, to your machine. Um, so most Windows 10 PCs currently being sold will be able to upgrade uh, to Windows 11. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Excellent. So maybe if we can bring Daniel in for for a moment, Daniel, what what do we know about the kind of system requirements? Will all devices that are running Windows 10 be able to run Windows 11? No, unfortunately, is the bad news. Um, now. I just have to put a big health warning on this because yeah. it's not decided by Microsoft yet at the moment, but it's looking like Intel 8th generation or newer uh, processors. Um, and for AMD, that's um, Zen 2 and the Qualcomm 7 and 8 series look likely to me. Now, this is still not guaranteed either. Now, however, they are, uh, Microsoft are working on the slightly older Intel 7th generation and AMD Zen 1 releases uh, that may meet their principles and the reason for this um is they're they're trying i suppose to shake off the reputation that windows has you know that it's susceptible to malware and all mm. you know all nasty things that can be out there and yeah. so this is the reason they're going they're going with um require you know requiring hardware that has has better security uh, integration in it and and that so that's that's what's making the difference here so it looks it looks on one hand to be a good move um, by Microsoft, but for someone who maybe wants to try out the uh, you know the new operating system without having to go along and shell out on a, a new unit, it's not so good news. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And and maybe if we bring in Sean as well uh, at the moment, just kind of generally, when we're talking about accessibility, when when there's a new operating system, there's always kind of a few concerns when a new operating system is released in terms of accessibility, isn't there? Yeah, it's the kind of it's kind of the curse and the benefit of early adopting because like with Windows 10, um, they released the Edge browser with that, not the Edge, not the Microsoft Edge browser that we have now or the Chromium, I mean, I should say. Yeah. It was, it was initial kind of Spartan based browser, which just didn't have any, any accessibility. There's no API access to for JAWS or NVDA to actually access and work with that browser. And that was set as the default PDF um, yeah. reader also. It was very easy to change that and like also easier to change. Um, you know, you, you could search for Internet Explorer at the time, but the, the course of early adopting is for you, you come across all these pitfalls and the benefit for early adopting for like Microsoft is to find out all these issues early. They can get them fixed 
Yes. So, yeah, so, yeah. so the key thing here is like if, if you have one laptop or computer and it's your main, it's your main device for accessing content and information, it's probably best not maybe to switch for two or three months, maybe even six months into it. But mm. if you had a if you had a second machine that you know you weren't as concerned about, and maybe enjoy testing new technology and seeing seeing what's available, if you were to use that second machine to move to Windows eleven early, and you found issues with your screen reader, or you just found internal issues maybe with like with Outlook on it, or maybe using an old Outlook on on a new version of Windows, or even a new version of Outlook on a new Windows, you could report back these issues, and therefore it allows the organization to fix them a lot quicker and more efficiently. So early adopters yeah. get the best of both worlds in which they get access to all the early developments, to get all the, the, cool, the cool new bells and whistles like JP was talking about there, but you also take all the risk of finding f finding the issues and uh, you know, it'd be great if you could report back on them because then, then they get fixed a lot quicker. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, it's kind of good to have that kind of balanced Outlook as well. Is there any kind of is there any real rush with it? So if people are kind of hearing that and they're thinking, okay, I'll delay um, installing or upgrading to Windows 11. How long have I got? Um, I think you're got. Yeah, um, if you want to stick with Windows 10 and not make the move at all, Jude, um, the support lifeline on Windows 10 is rolling out. I think right out to the end of 2025. Okay. So we're we're quite a bit off on that. Um, yes. Yeah. So if if you are apprehensive or like some people just for you know the the love working with what they're working with and why should it change what uh, you know I'm happy yeah, it's doing yeah. everything I want. Um, yeah, absolutely. You're you're your Microsoft is is going to secure Windows 10 with constant updates right out at least the end of 2025. So and uh, often they release these arbitrary dates and they think, ah, they throw on an extra year onto it at the end. Um, yes, yeah. You know, before they really do say, right, you're out on your own without support. Like Windows 7 is not long gone now. Was it about a year, I think, lads, is it? That Windows 7 yeah. is, is being like, dropped. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think it's important, Daniel, to probably like maybe strike a balance in that because pe people do like holding on to what's they're used to and what's good. But that can turn into the situation where you're holding on for too long and you're 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 too close to end of support. Yeah. Uh, and especially with likes all the we, we spoke about the different types of ransomwares and everything else happening that mm. it's not important. It's, it's not as important to jump onto Windows 11 when it happens. But you no, know, two or three years in, I'd be considering it if yeah. I haven't already. Um, but you don't want to hold on and hold on to your old one. Um, we we all love them. Windows 7 and XP, but if you don't move, you, you can get stuck with um, incompatibility issues and then worse, you can get, you know, you, you, you yeah. put yourself more at risk. So there, there's always, a, you know, there's ebb and flow and you have to kind of weigh everything up there. And yeah. sp speaking of Lifeline, um, it is announced with Windows 11 that Internet Explorer, I know it's a, a favorite of some of our uh, <laughs> listeners, it is uh, definitely axed in uh, Windows 11. Oh, okay, yes. And it's kind of half axed at the moment in Windows 10 that it'll constantly nudge you over to the new Microsoft Edge uh, Chromium browser. So it's uh, kind of the writing is on the wall for Internet Explorer now for a while. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it's a, another thing to to be aware of. Well, it's it's kind of interesting just to have that uh, sense of what's happening with Windows 11. We'll revisit this maybe in a future live event as well when we when we know a little bit more. But thanks to the panel there for giving us a bit of a, an overview of the release of Windows 11 as well. 
Now let's move on to our tech help for this week and uh, we'll come back to JP for, for this. So what have you got for, for us this week on tech help? Hey Jude, so we did receive a question in during the week from someone who asked, is there a way to mute JAWS when in a meeting? The short answer to this is yes, uh, there is a way. You can use a feature of what's called speech on demand in JAWS to do this for you. This is a feature that was actually introduced in JAWS and Fusion 2018 and allows users to completely mute speech during using a layered command, which is insert spacebar and then S. Exact same layered command that can be used to unmute speech in JAWS. Want that. So we can think of several situations this could be helpful. So for example, as this person pointed out, maybe in a, in a meeting, a Teams meeting or a virtual meeting, uh, playing a video, uh, maybe where any situation where you don't need JAWS speech all the time. And also for someone who might rely on, on, on Braille. So maybe you might want to activate uh, speech on demand um, so they don't hear speech when switching between open applications, pressing Alt and Tab or navigating documents or websites using the arrow keys or Braille display controls. So overall, yeah, speech on demand, a very welcome feature that's been introduced uh, to the JAWS screen reader in recent times. Excellent, very good. So thanks for taking us through our tech help there, uh, JP. Yes. Now, I think that we we had a, a couple of questions in. I'm not sure if, uh, if they're ones we can answer just at the moment. Let's just check in with uh, Daniel or Sean there. As, are they, uh, we've got a couple of questions yeah. in, I believe. I think the questions are, for, are from Laura and she's a few questions about um, sort of helping out maybe with NCBI and you know, that we can give her a call off the air and, and discuss that with her. Perfect, very good. So uh, thanks for your questions, Laura, and uh, we'll get back to you on that. So hopefully you've enjoyed today's show. Uh, just a reminder again, of course, that if you need technology assistance, you can get support from the labs team from nine to five Monday to Friday on 1850 92 30 60 or you can uh, email labs at ncbi.ie. I think I might have been reading out even the um, the older um, the older number there. So let's just read out the 1800 911 110. Am I reading out the right one? I hope and uh, 01531-2975. Labs at NCBI is the email address if you want any help. Uh, there as well. So the NCBI services number, of course, is 1850 4353 and email info at ncbi.ie. And of course, we always uh, appreciate uh, your support of NCBI. If you'd like to make a donation donation to help support our services, you can do that through donate.ncbi.ie. Just a reminder as well about the NCBI Smart Hub project. We're going to have a little bit of an update on that in one of our future shows, most likely our next show in two weeks time. Um, and that, that's really, uh, really coming on well. But if you're interested in helping out with testing, if you want to email smarthub at ncbi.ie, then we can add you to that as well. Just before we go, just a reminder of what will be uh, what we'll be talking about in some of our future live events. We'll have that update and the demonstration of the NCBI Smart Hub. So you'll be able to uh, see it in action a little bit. So that will be uh, good to, to see that and uh, get a bit of an update of when that will be available to you as well. We'll also be talking to our colleagues in RNIB about technology in one of our future live events too. And we're going to talk as well about uh, an event that uh, happened for the first time last December, um, Site Tech Global run an event each year and uh, we've got the second one coming up this later this year. We're going to talk to one of the organisers 
about that event and what that entails and how you can register for that online event as well. Reminder that our next show is in two weeks time. So that's Tuesday, July 13th, and that will be at the usual time of 2.30 p.m. And of course, if you want to stay up to date with what's happening on our live events as well as plenty more, you can subscribe to our newsletter on our website as well, or you can email us at labs at ncbi.ie if you'd like to do that. So all that's left for me to do then is to thank our guests today, Joe Lonergan and Anne-Marie Walsh from the NCBI team, and of course, Glenn Gordon as well. And of course, we want to thank everyone for listening in as well. And from JP, Sean, Daniel and myself, goodbye for now. And we look forward to having you all back with us soon for another NCBI Labs live event.